Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Luke chapter one. We're gonna continue in our Advent series called Miraculous, where we're looking at the miraculous works that took place around the time of Jesus's birth. And today we're gonna be in a text that's known as Zachariah's Prophecy or Zachariah's Song. And that's gonna pick up in Luke one, verses 67. Let me read the whole text. I'll pray and we'll get after it here. So verse 67. And his father Zachariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace." And the child grew and became strong in the spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we just thank you that you came in the form of a man and that's what we're celebrating this Christmas season to be the light of the world. And I just pray right now for anyone coming in here who just feels like they're in a dark season, in need of hope, searching for true joy. I pray that you would intervene in a powerful way and reveal yourself through this text, through our time together this morning. And so we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So let me set the stage for what's happening here. So this is taking place the night before Jesus's birth. Okay. And, and another birth had just happened. Another boy had just been born. It's not baby Yoda. It's a different baby, baby named John, Zachariah's son. So according to verse 79, what we know about God's people in this time is that they are living in the darkness and in the shadow of death. And so this time God's chosen people a multitude of people are stuck in a desert searching for hope. But there's this little faithful part of their hearts that's awaiting a sunrise that will bring an end to the darkness because they believe and they remember the concluding lines of the Old Testament from the book of Malachi that says, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And so this is what they're clinging to their last bit of hope. They're yearning for this, anticipating this. And they're also looking for what is going to be so great about it that they're going to respond like calves leaping from their stall. Probably need a more updated analogy there. But despite 400 years of darkness and nothing happening, they still have a little bit of hope. They're looking for the light to come. And now all of a sudden, as you get into Luke chapter one, there seems to be these little brief glimpses of light that are starting to stir up even more hope in them. We see a little earlier in Luke one that the angel Gabriel comes to this same guy, Zachariah, and he gives him words in regards to his baby boy who would be John the Baptist. And it's an exciting bit of news. And then he comes to a woman named Mary and tells her that the coming Messiah will be here soon. And now John has been born and there seems to be all of this light all of a sudden after 400 years of nothing. 
and you could sense that all that God's people were hoping for might be in motion. And so we come to Zechariah's prophecy and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he becomes the mouthpiece for the Lord, essentially a solo artist on behalf of God. The words he's about to speak are God's words. And that's how the spiritual gift of prophecy plays out. The Holy Spirit enters inside of you, fills you with words to share. Now these could be words for yourself, for someone else, for a group of people, for the church, but it could play out in a multitude of different ways. And if you're interested in taking a deeper dive into that, I recommend going back and listening to our sermon series on the spiritual gifts. But know that we believe that this gift exists and can happen today. And if that's you and you ever feel like you have a word from God for someone else, don't keep it to yourself. And so this word prophesied here, as it's used in the, in the New Testament, it's not necessarily limited to the mere prediction of future events, though that's a, a main part of it. Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians about prophecy, he says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So it can have other purposes as well. But of course, the foretelling of the future is a part of it. And that's what we see in Zechariah's prophecy here. So in Zechariah's prophecy or his song here, just like Mary, when she sings the Magnificat, her prophecy, his words are filled and rooted in the scriptures. See, Zechariah is a priest. He knows the scriptures inside and out really, really well. He marinates and meditates on them all of the time. And we see his love and wisdom in the scriptures play out here. One scholar I read even said that he could point out at least 33 references to the Old Testament in this short song alone. And we have his song here, which is traditionally referred to as the Benedictus, because the opening words, which are blessed be the Lord God of Israel, that translates to the Latin phrase, Benedictus Dominus Dies. And so what we're about to hear is a praise to the Lord. Why? For the coming sunrise, an end to the darkness. And it's an ordered praise given from a prophetic tone. And it's really fascinating how the Holy Spirit brings all this together. Like years and years and years before, when King David was inaugurating his son Solomon to the throne to be the next king, he begins with the exact same words saying, blessed be the God of Israel. So the original son of David was commissioned with those words. And likewise, the ultimate son, Jesus, is celebrated with those same words. There's some really beautiful symmetry and intentionality about this whole thing. And so as we go through it here, we're going to see four distinct sections. First, we're going to see praise to God for keeping his promise to David. Then we'll see praise to God for keeping his promise to Abraham. We'll see praise to God for the birth of John, his son that he is holding. And then we'll see praise to God for the coming light in Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that this whole thing is systematic. It's theologically sound and it's designed for us to sit on each one of these steps and give even more praise to God because we see this prophecy coming to life. So let's, let's get into this. Let's break it down a little bit here. Starting in verse 68, he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and what's the word? Redeemed his people. He has redeemed his people. Now, the question I have here is, is that redemption coming in the child that he's holding? Is it coming in John? Well, when you read the whole thing, it becomes obvious that no, it's not coming through John. And it's an interesting setting here because Zechariah is speaking out loud 
for the first time in nine months. We learned earlier in, the, in Luke 1 that he has been mute for the last nine months, hasn't said anything, all right? He finally has his baby John. He's holding him in his arms, but ultimately he barely talks about John in this prophecy, which I find really interesting. Like imagine going through all the months of childbearing, finally giving birth to your son, holding your newborn son in, in your arms and then singing about some other kid, right? That's essentially what's happening here. The whole song rather is about a salvation that is coming to which John is the precursor. He's the opening act, the one who will announce it. Ultimately, this is a song, basically an announcement about the announcement. You'll see as we go through, very little of this has to do with John. And ultimately the entire purpose of this prophecy is to point beyond John and point to the one who John is pointing to. So let's see, verse 69 says, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. We see that line, the horn of salvation. That would have been extremely powerful language culturally here. And the word horn isn't what you and I think. It's not like a tuba or a French horn, but rather it's in reference to an animal's horn, which represents its strength and its power. Culturally at this time, he's more than likely referring to the horn of an oxen or a buffalo. And the idea of a horn parallels a common Old Testament idea of lifting up horns, which, refer, which refers to a beast lifting up its horn high in the air, waving it back and forth rhythmically to tell everyone around that it is powerful, that it is formidable. It is something you're going to have to deal with if you're around it. And that's the idea that we see Zacharias singing about in regards to the power and might of the salvation Jesus is going to bring. It's a really beautiful image that that horn will be raised up in the powerful birth of Jesus. It'll be a horn of salvation for all who seek him. And I think we really need to slow down and feel the weight of this imagery that through Jesus's ministry, his mighty, powerful ministry, his horn is raised high and this implicit power will be devoted first to redemption as he will ransom his blood, sacrifice his love for all people, and secondly, deliverance from our earthly enemies. And so Zechariah is celebrating this as if the coming Messiah is raising up his horn high and is capable of a mighty deliverance, the one they had been longing for for years, and likewise, the one we long for inwardly today. And today that same horn is capable of saving all and any who come to him. That's the gospel that we believe. That despite anything we've ever done, anything we've ever thought or said or felt, Jesus Christ came to save you from that. Though we talk a lot about his miraculous birth this time of year, ultimately it's Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross that shows us exactly who he is, what he came to do, and how much he loves us. And so all of the shame that you might carry around, all of the guilt is paid for in full when Jesus died on the cross for you so you don't have to carry it around anymore. Jesus nailed it to the cross with him and he wants to nail it to the cross for you this morning. And if you feel a heaviness around this this morning, I would encourage you to come for prayer this morning. We would love to pray for you. And let me just say that the true sign of a mature believer in Jesus, someone who really gets the gospel, is that in the midst of your shame 
and sin and darkness, you don't run and hide from God, but you sprint full speed to him because you know he paid the price once and for all and you can be assured of full forgiveness, full salvation, full deliverance. That's the miraculous nature about who was born this season. That's the horn of salvation that he raises up today. Let's keep going here as he gets into praising God for the promise he made to David and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So the promise he made to David, the Davidic covenant is simply that years ago, God promised David that he would have a physical successor He would have someone that would succeed him to the throne as king and that there would be an ultimate son of David one day whose throne and kingdom would be established forever. And this promise was given to David at the height of David's reign as king. And David was asking God, can I build a temple for you? Can I build a house for you to come and live in? And God basically says, no, But instead, he promises David that I'm going to build a house for you in a different sense, through a lineage of people, through a dynasty, and eventually the Messiah Jesus will be part of that lineage. You can can read all about that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But this promise, this lit up hope in the hearts of God's people that God was going to one day send a savior, a messianic person from the lineage of David to come and establish an eternal throne. That was their hope. And it wasn't super clear to God's people for a long time when this would happen, who it would be, how it would all play out until about the mid eighth century BC when the prophet Isaiah says this, and we actually just sang a few words from this. Isaiah nine says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so back here in Luke 1, Zechariah is singing and prophesying about the faithfulness of God for bringing about the fulfillment of this promise to his people. He knows this is about to come true tomorrow. And as we move on in Zechariah's song, we see it moves from reference to the Davidic covenant into the Abrahamic covenant. Because what is understood of the Davidic is that it was always rooted in the promise God first made to Abraham. Interestingly, notice how there's still nothing. He's holding his baby in his arms. He still hasn't mentioned him once. Interesting. Verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So this promise is first given to Abraham in Genesis 12. If you're new to the Bible, Genesis is the very first book of this huge story here. So this promise is made very, very early on. And God basically tells Abraham that you're going to have a son and through him, the whole world is going to be blessed by your offspring. An an interesting thing that's taking place here is the Bible tells us that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are advanced in age at this time. Advanced in age is just a fancy way of saying they old, okay? 
So they're old. And it's an interesting parallel because the Bible also tells us that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are also old. I have to imagine Zechariah was thinking about that. And so Abraham is given this promise. And then in Genesis 15, 6, it says that Abraham believed God, that despite these extremely unlikely circumstances, they were going to have a child. And God was so pleased by Abraham's faithfulness in the promise that that night God caused Abraham to go to sleep. And in the night, God came in the form of a great smoking cauldron and a flaming torch passed all around the cauldron, which was symbolic that this was an unconditional promise and covenant to Abraham. And that if he were to ever break his promise to him, that God himself would be torn apart. And yet as great as that affirmation was, there's an even greater thing that God did to affirm his promise. And that comes after Abraham gives birth to his son, Isaac. And God calls Abraham to take him and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And as he took him up there and was lifting the dagger, God showed up and stopped him. And the scriptures say that the father in heaven was so pleased in Abraham's faithfulness that God did something he had never done before. He swore on himself. He swore on his own name that he would keep this promise. And that's what Zechariah is referencing and praising God for. He knows this promise is kept and is about to come true. That's what he's saying in these verses. To show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember God's holy covenant, he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. God swore on himself that this would be granted to us. So just like God enables Abraham to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him, God through Jesus will enable us to do likewise. So not only does he deliver us from our sins, but he gives us purpose in our life. And that's a life of service to him and following him. And I know the times in which we live right now so many of our lives are built around this idea of finding purpose, figuring out who am I? What's my calling? What is truly going to give me the satisfaction my heart desires that I've searched for in so many places? Because having a great job and a lot of money, well, that's nice. I still feel empty inside while having all the popularity I ever wanted, all the social media followers I ever wanted, all the positive comments, it's all great, but there's still an empty space inside of me. What's my purpose? Like this world offers really, really great temporary solutions, but ultimately they never last. They never give true joy. A lot of you in here know bits and pieces of my story. Um, ever since I was a little boy, like as long as I can remember, all I ever wanted was to be a hockey player. That's all I cared about. I remember I would sit in school and I just paid no attention to anything and I'd just be daydreaming about scoring goals, how I'm gonna celebrate. That's all I cared about. I wanted to play junior hockey, I wanted to play college hockey, I wanted to play professional hockey, and I got to do all of that. Like I got paid to play hockey while living on the beach in Florida. The city of Pensacola, my last name's Chong, they nicknamed me the Chong Show. Like an amazing nickname, especially because the guy who I sat next to, his nickname was Turkey Face, okay? So I got a really good, really good nickname. Full, full disclosure, 
it was much worse than Turkey Face, but we're at church. So <laughs> I got everything I ever wanted, honestly. I wanted to win a championship more than ever. My last year, we won a championship. I remember I got to skate around an arena with thousands of people holding a trophy above my head while people were cheering for me. Everything I ever wanted. And I remember coming home that off season and, and looking back at my time, which I love and cherish. I'm so glad I was a part of that. And I miss it sometimes. But I just remember thinking that was all amazing but I still feel like I'm missing something. And I remember a few weeks after that being up at Anvil Island at camp one summer, that same summer, and a girl was giving a testimony about how she had grown up in a really difficult household and things were dark and really hard for her. But that week she had come to experience Jesus in a powerful way and she knew that he was her hope she knew for the first time that he was her savior and she wanted to give her life to him. And I just remember thinking, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. Nothing gives me the kind of joy than when I think about the salvation Jesus has for us. And all of a sudden, when you start to think like that, life becomes more purposeful. And that's really the essence of our faith, right? Like Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is the purpose that God has called us to. And so Zechariah here sings that God's promise has been fulfilled through Abraham's people. And now you can worship him in holiness and righteousness through serving and following him faithfully in all our days. That's our purpose. All right, let's keep going here. Verse 76, finally, Zechariah looks down and he mentions his son here. Verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. See, as loud and as charismatic as I try to be up here, I don't think that I can come close to expressing Zechariah's emotion here. Like, think about it. It's been four centuries since there's been any outbreak of prophecy. He knows that. He's been mute for the last nine months, unable to speak. Now his tongue is loosened by the Holy Spirit and the subject of his prophecy includes his newborn son. Like, can you imagine being him in that moment? Imagine the emotion he must have felt. Now, later on in Luke, we'll learn more about John's ministry, that he'll be a forerunner to the coming Jesus. But here, Zechariah is focusing on the depth and the foundation of his ministry. That he will give people the knowledge of salvation. The words he uses doesn't mean that he'll give a theoretical knowledge of salvation, but rather he's going to give a personal intimately close knowledge of salvation. This is the great work of the gospel. Not that you just know about it, but that you have a deeply personal living knowledge of it. It's not just something you read about. It's something you live. It's not just in your head. It's in your heart. And not only that, but it says that he will give them a knowledge in the forgiveness of sins. What's the knowledge? Well, it's the knowledge of Jesus Christ and what he's come to do. That's what gives us that assurance. We see this all over the scriptures. I'll just show you a few here. 
A few verses later, when the angel Gabriel gives Jesus his name, he says, you shall call him Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 28 says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. First John one says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a song he's singing here. True knowledge of salvation true assurance of the forgiveness of sins. That's what Jesus and the gospel offers today. The only real eternal forgiveness in the universe. Like we can seek it elsewhere. We can seek it from one another, but ultimate forgiveness cannot be given outside of Jesus. And I know for some that might be hard to accept. When you think about things you may have done, or been a part of. Like when we dwell upon the darkness of our hearts and our reality, things we've been a part of, we can't help but ask, how could God possibly forgive me? Like sure, he went to the cross all those years ago, but you don't know what I've done. Let me ask you a question that I heard a pastor ask once. How many of your sins were future sins when Jesus was getting nailed to the cross? Well, unless you're 2,000 years old, all of them were. We haven't surprised him with how dark it's gotten. He knew it was coming. That's why he went. There's a few verses that can really sum up the essence of what Jesus did for us. Like 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Romans 5 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still betraying him, while we still didn't care about him, while we were still mocking him, while we were still turning our backs on him, Christ died for us. Here's hopefully a helpful reminder that I find myself constantly using in the midst of my sin and shame. Whenever you have those dark moments, you know, those sinful thoughts, those inward guilt-filled emotions where maybe you've done something you never thought you could do, or you've gone further into darkness than you ever thought you could go. That moment that maybe felt shameful and wrong, but for whatever reason, the lust of your heart couldn't get you out of it. That afterwards brought you overwhelming wave upon wave of shame and guilt just started pummeling you. You gotta remember, that's the exact moment Jesus died for you. That was it that's when Jesus breathed his last. That's when Jesus cried out, it is finished. And that's the moment that you're forgiven. So we run to him with confidence. This is the glory and the knowledge that Zachariah is singing and praising God about that his son will be the forerunner of. All right, let's see how he ends this prophecy here. Verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, 
whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah ends his song of praise here with praise for the imminent, sure to be rising of the messianic sun, that sun, S-U-N. And here's the image. God's people, they're portrayed here as a caravan of people, a group of people who have lost their way, wandering about. They've been overtaken by night and darkness. We see that they're in the dark wilderness with wildlife lurking and howling around. The sky is dark with no stars. And they're sitting, as the text literally says, in the shadow of death. That's where they are in their hearts. And they feel helpless. And just as Isaiah said years before of God's people walking in the darkness, living in the shadow of death, in need of a light and hope, this is where they are. Does anyone feel that way this morning? There's hope coming. Because all of a sudden, they look far into the east and they see a faint glow. The sky no longer dark, but slowly glimpses of orange and yellow rise above the horizon and finally the sun has risen and they're no longer sitting, but they're on their feet. Hope has filled their hearts. The darkness is no more and they can see where they're headed, being led by the sunrise from on high. That phrase, sunrise from on high, can be translated to the first light of heaven to give the idea of this cosmic appearance of Jesus Christ as the light of the world. This is a fulfilled prophecy happening before their eyes, the final prophecy of the Old Testament coming to life. And so Zechariah praises God for that. And what we see here, and when we really get into the scriptures, we find that the major turning points always point towards Jesus. That's what we're celebrating here at Christmas. Zechariah knew that. He understood that this baby boy he was holding was a part of a plan that would point towards Jesus. We see this again and again in the Old Testament. We see Jesus pointed out through Abraham. We see him pointed out through David. We see him pointed out through Isaiah. We see it in the first Passover where the lamb was sacrificed to pay for sins. Likewise, Jesus becomes our sacrificial lamb. These are just a few of many, but we see that the major turning points all point towards Jesus' coming, and that's what we're celebrating today. The life of John, it points out a really interesting fact for all of us, that human beings discover their greatest importance in pointing to Jesus. Human beings discover their greatest importance in pointing to Jesus. What's John's greatest importance? Well, it's pointing out the person and work of Jesus. In Luke's gospel, that's the functioning importance of John. We honestly don't know a whole lot else about him. I don't think that matters. I think that's intentional by Luke. All that matters is that John exists to point to Jesus, to make Jesus known. And this becomes all the more 
important and interesting when you look at Matthew 11, when Jesus says this about John, he says, truly I say to you, among those born of a woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. What? So in Jesus' mind, John is greater than King David. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Solomon, greater than Isaiah. There's no one greater than John. That's what Jesus says. Why? David pointed ahead to Jesus, didn't he? Abraham did. Isaiah did. They all pointed to Jesus in some sense, but only to John was it given to say from a physical perspective, that's him. That's the lamb of God. That's the one whose sandals I'm unworthy to undo. He must increase. I must decrease. It fell to John's place in all of redemptive history to point out exactly who Jesus was. And that's what made him great in Jesus' eyes. It gets more interesting because look what Jesus says next. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You hear what he just said there? That means that if you're a believer in here, Jesus says, you're greater than John. That's what Jesus says. And didn't he just say that John was greater than David? So does that mean I'm greater than David? (laughs) Clearly we're not better than David in every aspect of life. It's still in a context here. What he means is just as John's greatness was built on the immediacy in which he pointed out who Jesus is, so your greatness is built on the immediacy in which you can point to Jesus. In one sense, we can actually say way more about Jesus than John ever could. Like not long after Matthew 11, John is going to be executed. He never lives to see Jesus' death. He never lives to see the resurrection. He never lives to see the coming of the Holy Spirit. But any Christian today can know all about those things. And as a result, we as Christians today can point out with greater clarity and immediacy than John ever could. And that's what Jesus says makes us great and is our purpose. So let me close this thing all together. The overarching question for us this morning then becomes, where does our self-identity lie? Is it in having the most money? Having the best stuff? Being the best looking? Having the most social media followers? Longest life? Being the most educated? Sure, all these things have a place or role in the grand scheme of things. They're all part of life. But what truly gives us our greatest importance is our supreme privilege that we have in pointing to Jesus. And so as we just heard in Zechariah's prophecy here, the coming of Jesus, this Jesus whom John is pointing to, This Jesus whom we celebrate this Christmas season, this Jesus who comes to give salvation through the forgiveness of sins, this is our hope in this season and all seasons. Are you in need of hope this morning? Point to Jesus. Are you in need of healing? Point to Jesus. Are you in a spiritual battle right now? 
point to Jesus. Are you looking for purpose? Point to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you so much that you came to be the light amidst the darkness of our reality. Lord, I just pray right now for anyone in here with a heavy heart who feels like your people wandering the desert, feeling helpless, in need of any bit of hope. Jesus, would you just show up in a powerful way this morning? May we just find our purpose in you and you alone, but we need your help. We can't flick a switch and make that happen. We need you to show up and help us with that. I just pray for boldness in the hearts of your people this morning that if anyone in here would just be just feeling lost or broken or hurt or sick, that you would just give them the boldness to come and and get prayer and know that they don't have to do this on their own. But Jesus, you came and you died for all of that to give us help. So help us approach you with confidence. We thank you for this season. We thank you that you're the light coming into our world. And we love you, Jesus. Would Would you just reveal yourself to us in a powerful way? In your great name, amen.